Welcome to the Wealth Management Podcast presented to you by Polaris Greystone Financial Group. During this week's episode, we are going to take a week out and reflect at the past 10 years worth of change. It is April of the year 2018, and it marks 10 years since the official start of the financial crisis. One does not need to look far, certainly, to see that a great deal has changed, and some things haven't. And at Polaris Greystone, we literally cannot afford to ignore these things. Today, I will engage in some discussion with Jeffrey Powell about what have been, in our view, some of the largest changes affecting the U.S. economy. Welcome back, Jeff. My pleasure. Thanks for joining us again. Today, we are going to talk about um, a very special anniversary. It has been 10 years since a lot of people think that the financial crisis began. So we're going to take kind of a uh, a walk down memory lane, if you will. Um, It's going to be very educational. And uh, so before I I go over the agenda, Jeff, do you have any general comments that you'd like to make? Well, I guess one of the biggest ones that I've seen, and it's it's not really much of an agenda item, but it would be more of a unhappy anniversary, would it not be? Given the (laughs) fact that we're going back over some some pretty sad things that were going on in our world about a decade ago. Yeah, yeah, I apologize. It It is certainly not a happy thing, but as our role... Um, is to help investors understand their world. Um, I, I definitely like to place these things in context. I mean, it's been 10 years. Yeah, so, I mean, let's think back 10 years for a moment. I mean, what was going on at that time? Almost 10 years ago to this day, Bear Stearns went out of business on April 1st, 2008. Not a really good April Fool's joke, uh, but yeah, that was what was going on. And if you really kind of think about uh, the aftermath of what went on shortly thereafter and the months that went on afterwards, we were dealing with a lot of very scary times. Yeah, extremely scary times. So those were the first cracks that uh, that appeared in the edifice, right? I think a lot of us can agree that when, when Bear Stearns went down, I think that was the first public institution that had been allowed to file a bankruptcy and it very quickly started to gather steam from there, didn't it? Yeah, you know, it absolutely did. It certainly was the first show of cracks in the foundation. Uh, we quickly then saw exactly what was going on between liar loans and leverage and all sorts of other fun things that were going on within the financial industry that uh, that really uh, reared its ugly head, mostly starting in the second half of the year. But by June 30th of 2008, the stock market had already dropped over 12% and was moving further down. Okay. So that was that actually brings up my first on the item of agendas. And so just to give us kind of a quick overview of what we're going to be discussing first, we're going to talk about some of the names that have changed. Uh, definitely not to protect the innocent. Um, we're going to be going through absolute numbers with the housing market and stock market in view. We're going to go to employment, national debt, and then we're going to round out and talk about fraud, etc. So for number one, uh, talk about names. Um, obviously, Bear Stearns is gone. Um, who else is not with us anymore well, right now? The largest failure or, or uh, the largest uh, bankruptcy in U.S. history, Lehman Brothers, went away uh, back in September of mm-hmm. 2008. But you could also rattle off names like Washington Mutual, which a few weeks later was gone. Uh, even before that, Merrill Lynch, mm-hmm. AIG, Wachovia. All uh, names that are gone, Countrywide, another name that's gone. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then a lot of other companies that were filing for bankruptcy and government protection. I mean, General Motors, for example, Mm -hmm. was the following year that they finally filed for bankruptcy. But even to this day, the U.S. government owns almost a third of General Motors due to the bailout that happened a decade ago. Mm -hmm. And what happened to the, uh, to, to the, the, the parts of those bankrupt companies? I mean, they're still around. 
uh, not in, in name, but they're parts of other firms. That's exactly right. So a lot of the other firms, so Merrill Lynch and Countrywide's case, those both went to Bank of America. AIG basically was taken over by the U.S. government and then split back out as another name and then broken into multiple pieces and is operating under multiple names now. Obviously, things like Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae were already government agencies and uh, basically taken uh, back over by the government and put out there. Wachovia was Wells Fargo now, Bear Stearns is JP Morgan, uh, Washington Mutual is also JP Morgan. So a lot of these banks that were were strong enough back in the financial crisis to absorb other companies, looking at them 10 years later, I mean, uh, obviously made a whole lot of sense for them to sit there and pick them up. Uh, someone like Lehman actually had to be broken into multiple pieces. So Barclays now, if you remember, there were a lot of indexes that were mm-hmm. called the Lehman Brothers, whatever index, they're now the Barclays indexes. Mm, yeah. Nomura picked up some of it, and then uh, BlackRock picked up the entire ETF portion of what Lehman Brothers was running at that time. And so what was really interesting during that time, I think a lot of us had to pick up um, some different vocabulary terms for what was happening, right? So, well, there um, was a one big word that came out, especially during that time, called TARP. <laughs> right. Very controversial or not controversial. I, I think it was, wasn't it? Well, I think a very controversial in a lot of ways because some of these banks were actually quite solid on their own and picked up companies that were failing. And as a result of picking up some of their debt and so on, fell under the TARP rules. So they mm-hmm. actually did the U.S. government a favor and then fell under the rules and regulations of uh, TARP, which basically limited some of the executives' compensation until they could pay back the TARP money. Uh, So basically, we're talking about toxic asset repayment program is what TARP stands for, uh, to give our acronym back its proper name. And it was really there to help deal with uh, debt and unserviceable debt and the ability to write off certain debts over a period of time. So a lot of the larger banks uh, got caught with it. A lot of the investment banking firms were using it as an investment product and also got caught in that situation as well. Mm -hmm. And then, okay, so TARP is one. Can you think of any other fun acronyms that we've picked up over the last 10 years, they mm. kind of sprang into existence. I know ZERP. Um, ZERP is definitely, a, uh, ZERP is a new one, yes. Uh, so zero interest rate uh, policy is what ZERP stands for. We mm-hmm. all said NZERP, near zero interest rate policies. Mm-hmm. Uh, what other acronyms can I think of off the top of my head? That's kind of it. I know that we had other things like quantitative easing, which was vocabulary that we never used prior sure. to... Uh, uh, the situation that we found ourselves with uh, within, right? Um, uh, popularly uh, called QE, uh, exactly. In the last several years, and if you can r- remind us what that exactly was, that was uh, a purchasing program that was initiated by the Fed, wasn't it? Exactly. So quantitative easing is essentially a printing press for us to sit there and assure that uh, enough U.S. Treasuries were actually being purchased, purchased by the U.S. Treasury uh, from the Federal Reserve, in order to sit there and have liquidity. For the fixed income marketplace and to create demand and when you're creating demand you're pushing interest rates down so it's a way for us to be able to afford our own debt and to be able to issue more debt uh in that situation okay so um i teased at the beginning of the broadcast we were going to talk about absolute numbers so um a lot of people kind of look at this you know kind of year by year progression of the dow for example and you see these little pivot points right where it just falls a little but it didn't feel so small in 2008 when this stuff started happening, right? So what were the absolute numbers? I, th- I see you have them there uh, for the S&P. Maybe you can walk us through some other things. Yeah, I mean, the S&P is one that, that really kind of truly comes to mind for me. I mean, and obviously when we were dealing with the markets, the, the markets peaked in October of 2007 um, and they peaked around 1574, if memory serves correct. 
Um, third quarter of 2007 was not a very strong quarter. In fact, mm-hmm. uh, and looking back, the National Bureau of Economic Research actually identified December as the first month of the recession. Uh, obviously, but, that information didn't come out from them until December yeah, of 2008, say, so <laughs> that didn't really help very much. But uh, um, but we actually use uh, the Chicago Fed National Activity Index for for our own investment management, which was one of the ways that we saw that we'd entered a recession pretty early into 2008, which helped us get defensive with our clients' assets. So the S and P went down. Was it the S and P went to, to 666? Right. Correct. I always remember that. I was raised religious. That always just stands out. Exactly. It went to 666. And that was back in March of 2009. Right. So we had uh, a obviously a 37% drop in the market uh, in 2008. But what if you don't, if what most people don't really look at is when you go from top to bottom, it was obviously significantly, significantly larger mm-hmm. than that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was massive. So from the the highs that we established at the end of 2007 to uh, to today, 10 years beyond. Um, how much would we have lost if we just bought the S&P, if one could do that at that time? Well, I was going to say, the, the one thing I would keep in mind within that is that I don't know too many people that would have had the stomach to completely write mm-hmm. out that 574 down to 666 and not want to take a few chips off the table right. and uh, get defensive with their portfolios. What what most people do is they invest when they feel comfortable and they get out when they don't feel comfortable. And then they're too afraid to get back in when the markets are recovering. Um, but to answer your question in total, really, if you're looking at the markets of back in October of 2007 being at 1574, we're sitting at what, 1663, I believe, after the close today, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, you're looking at almost a 70% increase in market value. So one of the things that we constantly are trying to remind our clients is, is while there may still be scars from the cuts and the bruises that we experienced back in 2008, we're in a new era. We're in a secular bull market right now, not a secular bear market. We've actually finished our secular bear market back in 2013. So we do want to be looking at our current markets a little bit differently. We certainly never want to ignore what went on during that time period. We obviously need to learn from it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you could be forgiven for being a little bit uh, shell-shocked still if you were if you were caught up in that. I think John Bogle the other day was just talking about how he felt that this was, what, the most volatile market that he's ever seen which I mean, come on that that actually sounds a little off for me um he's getting up there so he must have seen this kind of volatility before well and taking his quote just a one step further he said that he had seen two 50 plus percent pullbacks in the market uh meaning 2000 through 2003 and the 2008 markets and saying the 1987 stock market crash in 2000 or 1987 october 19th um, and he's trying to compare this market to that. It's just, it's not even close to the same kind of market. But you know what that makes me think? That's why we're doing this, uh, this show, right? Because if, you, if, you're, if you're right next to a crisis, like, you know, the one that happened in February, for example, if you want to call it a crisis, it feels bigger. Uh, but when it's 10 years away, it might start fading from view. And yeah. it doesn't feel like a big deal. Yeah, I, w- I would not call what's been going on over the last couple of months a crisis. What I would be talking about yeah. is this being <laughs> rhetoric and this being a sentiment-driven market that has fallen off. Uh, we had a market that lasted so long without having a 3% or a 5% correction, uh, let alone a 10 uh, that it was really long in the tooth for it to happen. So really having what we've had experienced over the last month and a half, it's called a normal market. Mm-hmm. If you look at the inter-year declines from 1980 to present, you typically have a 14% decline and still the average return in the S&P 500 is 11%. Yeah. So when you go from having a volatility index reading at nine, which was where it was in January of this year, and it goes up to 50, I understand why that would be scary. And so, yes, that was a, a high point that we'd not experienced since August of 2015. 
But the VIX right now is settled in right around 20. That is normal. So we have been in half the volatility that we normally would experience. And as a result of volatility picking up, it seems a lot scarier than it really is. So let's shift gears and talk about the other side of the equation. Um, everybody loves to talk about how great it is to buy real estate, oftentimes. I shouldn't say everybody, but real estate. Real estate has, um, you know, has obviously shifted as well. Um, do you have any specific numbers that can reflect that? Well, I think that real estate is really very much in the eye of the beholder. I actually was talking to several people in different locations uh, that are either employees here of the firm or are talking to clients in different locations. And really, a lot of people are not feeling great about real estate right now. If you look at what has gone on, the S&P Case-Shiller Index uh, peaked in June of 2006 is when the real estate market peaked. So mm -hmm. again, people talk about the markets turning south in October of 2007. But if you really were looking back at what was impacting the markets, then real estate was a big factor of it. Mm -hmm. um, it didn't bottom out until... February of 2012. Wow. Um, so we had an extended time period, a five and a half year time period where real estate dropped and dropped and dropped. That same index, which is basically an index of looking at the largest cities throughout the United States, did not get back to break even until December of 2016. And now was only 6% above where it was back at its all-time highs prior to this point back in June of 2006. Wow. So a 6% return over a 12-year time period, uh, not a really good thing, especially when you've looked at inflation being well over 20% in that same time period. So if you're so, out buying real estate, you actually lost money. So so just to, to go back and make sure I hear you correctly, that's a 6% net gain or is that an annualized rate of growth? That's total return. Wow, so 100,000 becomes 106,000. Correct. Total. Now, the only thing mm -hmm. that I could put back into the, the court of the real estate investor is that this is a leveraged product. That also works both directions, however. Yeah. So if you're looking at this saying, hey, I've got a $100,000 investment. Well, I put $20,000 down on it. I've got $6,000 in equity. But what you aren't looking at is I paid property tax. I paid mm -hmm. insurance on this. I've had interest payments and so on. There's a cost to carry that's experienced with it as well. <laughs> I'll tell you what we can do. We can do an entire show <laughs> around that, right? Because there's, there's just so much I start thinking about when we start talking real estate. Um, okay. So let's move on. Um, employment, obviously, there's been a lot of talk about the uh, continued progress of the unemployment index. Um, you know, talk about that if you, if you could just a little bit. Yeah. So I think that what you're really talking about is the overarching discussion of, are we better off now than where we were back in 2007 before the financial crisis even happened and mm -hmm. how much have we truly recovered now? Well, the stock market is truly recovered and it's significantly above where we were, as we just discussed, housing is not yeah. the average wage has gone up about 26% total over the last 10 years. So if you're looking at where wages were in January of 2008 and where they are today, it's not a substantial growth pattern. You're talking about a total of 6% growth above inflation. So mm -hmm. people that are out there feeling like they're really not making progress, they're not getting uh, ahead in this game, they're not. That's the reality of it. So we've seen uh, other positive things go on. I mean, we've seen um, the average household debt service ratio, for example, go down 30%, which means that while they may not be making a lot more money, they actually have been able to 
refinance their homes and have that percentage be a lower percentage of their overall income. So individual um, debt service has, has gone down. That's what you're saying. Yeah. And corporate has as well. Unfortunately, I think that I already kind of sense where you're going with this, which is federal debt on the other end. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to get there. I, I just want to pause just real quickly because um, I also want to ask about participation. You know, a lot has been written about this, and I think that it's worth saying not everybody's experiencing the benefits uh, in, in the same measure, yeah, right? That's exactly right. So, I mean, we have seen unemployment that's uh, changed pretty dramatically. I mean, unemployment back before the financial crisis was about the same levels that we are right now. Right. Uh, by the time of October of 2009, so, I mean, again, you got to remember that uh, employment's not going to be instantaneously dropped as the financial crisis is going on. Unemployment hit over t slightly over 10% in October of 2009. Mm -hmm. Did not fall back below 9% until October of 2011. Wow. So a pretty extended time period. And while we are right now at 4.1%, the interesting things that I'm looking at is while we've seen a significant drop in uh, our unemployment rates, We've got a demographic shift that's going on. Really, we had uh, back in December of 2007, we had 66% of our population working. Right now, we've got 62.7. So we actually mm -hmm. have less of our population working. And then we have job creation. Uh, and back in uh, at the end of 2006, we had 149 million jobs. We now have 156 million. Wow. So we really have only grown 7 million jobs, even though unemployment has dropped pretty dramatically. It's lack of participation as mm -hmm. baby boomers move into retirement and then having an uh, increase in jobs. But really, uh, again, those things are influencing it. And a qualitative shift too, right? I mean, if I'm a, a barista um, serving coffee, um, it's a different kind of job uh, from an engineer working for a science company. But I'm, I'm both, in both instances, I'm raising my hand saying that I have a job, right? So uh, do you have any idea of how that's playing out? Yeah, I mean, really there you're talking about U6 unemployment. And, and the, ch the challenges there are it's very difficult to be able to see what's going on when you have somebody shift from U3 unemployment, which is just, am I employed or am I not employed, mm -hmm. to kind of the disenfranchised, the person that's fallen off the back end. You know, if you've graduated from college and you can't find a job and then you no longer qualify for unemployment, guess what? You're not there. So, I mean, so these are, are things that you definitely want to be looking at. I've, I've read multiple, multiple stories of people that were doing one job back before the financial crisis occurred and are now doing something entirely different. We've seen people lose 100% of their retirement. So we've seen them lose homes. We've seen them wreck their credit. There's yeah. a number of things that have occurred during this time period. Uh, so it's interesting because there are some statistics out there that show that the average overall household has increased its total value from about $67,000 per household to a hundred. But that's looking at everyone. If you actually look at the statistics, really only the top 10% in the United States in total net worth have seen an increase in their total net worth. You've actually wow. seen the rest of the 90% decrease in various percentages over the last decade. So that's really kind of a reflection of that, uh, that, that dwindling middle class uh, scenario that's been talked about um, quite a lot recently. So you have to be in the top, you have to be doing well to be doing well. No question about it. I mean, the other thing that I think that's kind of interesting out there is we still have issues. I mean, like even though I'm talking about the household debt service ratio getting getting fine. I mean, before the financial crisis happened, I mean, the delinquency rate on loans was about one and a half percent. It's about three and a half right now. Wow. And while that's still way below the eleven and a half percent at the absolute height in first quarter of 2010, it's still substantially higher than where it was. So right. we're not 
completely out of the woods here. I mean, when it comes to the economics, you know, our economy is certainly a lot stronger. It's a lot bigger. We do not have the same sort of issues when it comes to uh, the financial institutions. There's no cracks and foundations there or, or anything close to it. But we haven't seen a wealth distribution to the general public, which is kind of why I was very surprised to hear the media actually being concerned about seeing wage increase at 2.5% in their last readings. I mean, Mm -hmm. you want to see a wage increase. And while it could technically be inflationary, 70% of our economy is driven by wage growth. It's by people, the personal consumption. So if you have more money going into the average person's hands, it's a stimulus to the economy. Mm-hmm. So to me, I look at that and go, if we want to remain above the, the averages of 2.8% GDP growth, which is a 50 plus year number, right now we're at 2.9, mostly due to other stimuli. If we're looking at it in that situation and we have a wage increase because we have such low unemployment that you actually have to start paying out for talent, that's a good thing. Yeah. Okay, so we're not doing hugely better um, on an individual basis with regards to that. You said debt was better though. Now. I bet you're going to tell me that the nation is doing better too, right? Or no? Well, is the U.S. Uh, looking good on a debt and deficit? If you're, well, I, I think it really kind of depends on what you want to be looking at from a starting point. I mean, if you're going back prior to the financial crisis uh, in 2007, the United States was sitting on about nine trillion dollars worth of debt. Nine trillion. And if you Got look it. at where we are right now, twenty-one trillion dollars worth of debt. So, no, on that kind of situation, it's not, not, obviously, you don't want to sit there and double your debt over a decade's time period. No. Um, I will say that there are some things that have definitely um, been better. I mean, obviously, we spiked at having a deficit to GDP um, back when we were bailing out everybody in 2008, 2009. Uh, it spiked at 10.6% deficit to GDP, a number that we've not seen since World War II. Wow. Uh, so a significant, significant number. Uh, we're sitting at 3.8%, which uh, from a historical standpoint, slightly below average, but certainly not great. We've been in obviously positive or a budget surplus situation under the Clinton administration. During uh, the second Bush administration, we were down below 2%. We've been down in that 2.5% range uh, about two years ago. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not great to sit there and obviously overspend what you don't have. So uh, this is a continued issue. Uh, As long as we're keeping our deficit to GDP close to inflation numbers, we should be fine because basically what we're saying is we're taking on additional debt at a level that inflation is occurring. So having it in that range, not the end of the world, but we obviously can't ignore this situation forever. So last off, we talked about, um, we talked a little bit about fraud um, and the evolution of the uh, kind of the investment experience, but um, let's kind of close out on that note. I mean, there's been a lot of big scandals um, that have rocked the investment world, right? So we start off with uh, Bernie well, Madoff. I was going to say, let's start off with the most obvious name, right? Yeah. So, I mean, obviously, when markets are going down, people get nervous. And when people get nervous, they start asking for their money. Uh, and in Bernie Madoff's case, it happened in uh, December of 2008. Uh, he got arrested on December 11th, uh, the largest Ponzi scheme and the the world's history 50 billion dollars mm-hmm. was what was at risk it turned out that they were able to recover about 50 cents on the dollar of it but we had other mm-hmm. bigger names also i uh, don't know if you remember the name alan stanford of stanford financial group uh, that was almost a 20 trillion or billion dollar uh, uh scandal as well and it's, wow. it's certainly mm-hmm. less known uh, there were m- several other multi-billion dollar Ponzi schemes, fraud, whatever else you want to sit there and talk mm-hmm. about. 
which really led to greater oversight within uh, our world, which uh, really should fall not only within the broker-dealer world, but also mm-hmm. within the, the RIA world as well. Um, but you continue to see it go on, which is the thing uh, through my research uh, and uh, wanting to put together some educational pieces for people. The thing that's kind of scary to me is that I, through my research, saw that there was almost 60 cases of Ponzi schemes, fraud, just in 2016 alone, totaling about $2.4 billion. Wow. So that's on average, that's what, five a month? So you're crazy. looking at one a week? Absolutely crazy to me that this is still going on. So really, again, we had the Dodd-Frank Wall Street Reform and Consumer Protection Act. Uh, a lot of that was really more pointed towards the banking industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Volcker rule within that really, again, wanted to kind of temper the risk that banks were taking uh, and speculation that they were taking to make sure that if somebody was depositing money in their local bank, that it would remain safe. Uh, mm-hmm. The thing that remains a little frightening to me is the fact that some of this fraud is continuing to go on. And obviously, yeah. the rules and regulations that are, are in place right now, we're not stopping it. Uh, so one of the things that we've been talking about some internally here in the office is we're held to a fiduciary standard here at Polaris Greystone. Uh, the brokerage industry is not. And so why is it that we can't get everybody to, to sit there and provide the same sort of transparency that we do, uh, both in how we manage money and how we're dealing with fees, mm-hmm. their ability to see their accounts, uh, and so on. Because really what you're talking about in most of these fraudulent cases that is that people have lost control of their ability to maintain their own protection through transparency. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's one of the biggest things out there of uh, need of change within the, bro- uh, within the brokerage industry. Uh, and really within ours is to provide the, the client who ultimately is our boss anyway, the most amount of transparency that we can possibly provide them. Well, if you're listening to this uh, show and you're with us at this point, uh, still, I mean, you're probably not that person that's not learning from your history. I think that you're more than the, uh, you're more interested than the average bear. But education, self-education is really the whole point, I think, of what you're talking about, right? Yeah. I mean, obviously, know who you're investing with uh, is a, a big factor of it. Where are the assets being held? Um, you know, who's printing your statements, who's printing your conference, who's preventing printing your performance reports, how is your money being managed? Can you see it online? Mm-hmm. Those are the types of things that, that I'm talking about with transparency. I mean, um, it, it's absolutely essential to be an informed buyer. Well, that's, uh, that's kind of a wrap. I mean, we've actually gone a little long here, but I, I think there was, like, like I said, there's enough here to, to map out like an entire course worth, uh, of information. 10 years, there's been a lot that's gone on, but as the Roman philosopher Cicero once put it, those that don't know their history, they're bound to repeat it, right? Exactly. And we don't want to be doing that. Obviously, uh, the road is littered with those that haven't. Uh, so anyways, Jeff, any, uh, any signing off uh, comments before we get going? Uh, my, my biggest thing that I would throw out there is, again, what we're seeing right now going on in the markets is nothing. Uh, and I do repeat nothing like what we were de- dealing with in 2008. Uh, happy investing. I would actually strongly encourage you to be looking at what's truly going on in this current market environment uh, instead of what uh, you're hearing uh, on the sidelines. All right. Well, if you have any other questions, of course, you know where you can find us. We're online. You can reach out to your local contact if you are a client of Polaris Greystone. Other than that, as Jeff said it, happy investing. Take care.
Polaris Greystone Financial Group LLC is a federally registered investment advisor. The information, statements, and opinions expressed in this material are provided for general information only and are subject to change without notice. This material does not take into account your particular investment objectives, financial situation, or needs, is not intended as a recommendation to purchase or sell any security, and is not intended as individual or specific advice. It should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. Polaris Greystone does not offer legal or tax advice. All information contained herein is believed to be accurate, but accuracy cannot be guaranteed. Advisory services are only offered to clients or prospective clients where Polaris Greystone Financial Group, LLC, and its representatives are properly licensed or exempt from licensure. Past performance is no guarantee of future returns. Diversification does not assure a profit or protect against loss. Investing involves risk and possible loss of principal capital. No advice may be rendered by Polaris Greystone Financial Group, LLC, unless a client service agreement is in place.